Well, good morning to each one this morning. Welcome to this part of the service. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, Lord. We thank you for the many blessings that you have given to us, Lord. As we were really challenged this morning, Lord, to think of the blessings we have, Lord, and to continue to see your blessings that you continue to give to us. Lord, I pray that you would bless this part of the service, Lord. I pray you would bless us as we look at your word, Lord, as we endeavor to grow in being like you, as we endeavor to, Lord, to be a light to those, to the world around us. Lord, I pray that you would guide my thoughts, you would guide my words this morning. Lord, help us to hear what you would have us to hear this morning, Lord. Give me the words to speak that you would have me to speak. Lord, and I trust that we can all learn from your word this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So my thoughts this morning <clears throat> kind of come from a a variety of sources. Some of the um, things that I've been thinking about um, since talking to um, those who are living in Tanzania. Um, some things that I've been pondering in my own life. And some of it comes out of thinking, how do we support our missionaries? How do we better support those that are maybe on a foreign field? And what does that, what does that mean? And this is, you know, we could talk about, you know, various ways of supporting those who are on the foreign field, we could talk about supporting them, you know, financially. That's a part of it. Um, we could talk about supporting them emotionally. Um, we could talk about praying for our missionaries. You know, those are all important things. Um, but I like to talk about something that maybe we don't think about as much or as directly. Um, being supporting of them. And this is not necessarily a message either on, um, specifically on how we support our missionaries. It's broader than that. But this is some, uh, some of my thoughts have come out of, out of pondering, pondering over that. And, you know, how do we be a support? What does that mean? How can we do it better? And I think what we're going to talk about this morning is an, is an important part of supporting our missionaries and something they feel very keenly, um, but it's not something that we think of as directly supporting them, maybe. And if it's something that's very much appreciated if they feel it, and it's something that's missed if it's not there. But I'd like to start out by thinking... 
by asking a question. What do you think of when you think of a missionary? What comes to your mind when you think of a missionary? Maybe someone has some thoughts. What, what's, what's the thing that comes to your mind when you think of the word missionary? Yes, John. Someone who has left um, their normal environment and gone to distant land. That's a good definition. Um, any others? What, what do you think of when you think of a missionary? One who is sent. One who is sent. Yes. Has a mission. Has a mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are also those are all some good definitions of of what it means to or, or what a missionary might be, and we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. Um, you know, sometimes we when we talk about missionaries, we often tend to think of of someone. The most common definition is we think of someone who has left, like John said, has left their um, normal life, has gone somewhere on a mission. Um, and, you know, we sometimes say, you know, we can't all go somewhere to be missionaries, but we should all be missionaries where we're at. You know, we're talking about a word that's not in the Bible. The word missionary is not a word that you're going to find in the Bible. Um... So is it biblical to say that we should be missionaries? And those are some things we look at this morning. What does it what does it mean to be a missionary? Is it biblical to say we should all be missionaries? And you know, how does this all relate to supporting those that we have sent away somewhere? Um, so I think the first thing we want to look at is a, a little bit, you know, what is, <clears throat> define a little bit what a, what a missionary is. And I think it's helpful in doing that to first think about kind of what's the root word of a, what's the root word of missionary? It's mission. So I have a couple of definitions here. I'm just going to write them up on the board. Um, First, what is a missionary? I'm first looking at some definitions of of, of mission. A mission is a specific task with which a person or a group is charged. Um... It's a definite, sometimes it can be used as a definite military, naval, or aer- aerospace task. Not something we're talking about this morning. 
a pre-established and often self-imposed objective or purpose, thinking about someone has a mission. They have something they want to accomplish. It could be a calling, a vocation, or a body of persons sent to perform a service or carry on an activity. So, a specific task... Calling a vacation. Or someone who is sent, or a body of persons sent to perform. So we'll say... Sent, let's say sent to perform. Sent to perform something, a task or a um, carry out a mission. So someone who, when we think about the word mission, it's a word we probably use a little bit more commonly you know when when i when I go out to the job site and we have a a roof that needs replaced, I have a mission, and that mission is to replace this customer's roof, give them a roof that will last, give them a roof that doesn't leak, and to do it in a way that's going to satisfy the customer and you know also be profitable for the for the company. So I have a mission that I'm set to accomplish. You know, maybe in the home, you know, as a mother, you get up and your mission that day is to do all your wash. You want to get all your wash done. You want to get it washed. You want to get it dried. You want to get it folded. You want to get it put away. You have a mission you want to accomplish. Another word that's related to, to mission is commission. You know, we talk about the Great Commission in Matthew 28. You know, go ye into all the world and teach all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. Jesus was giving his disciples a mission. He's saying this is something that needs to be accomplished. He was commissioning them. He was sending them. He said, this is your mission. So, as we as was already mentioned this morning, a missionary is one who is undertaking a mission. He has a mission, or he has been given a mission, and you know he's in, now endeavoring to carry out that mission. And you know, oftentimes this is used in the context of the more missionary is used in the context of religious activities, um, religious groups carrying out a mission. But it really simply means one who is carrying out a mission. So should we all be missionaries? Do we all have a mission? God has left us here on this earth for a purpose. He hasn't just left us here 
to live, to sit, and to wait till we die so that we can go to be with him, has he? Is that why, is that why we are here? You know, as Jesus taught us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that just something we pray and wish for? Or do we have a part in making that happen? Is there, is there some action to be put behind those words? I'd like to look at a parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, and let's start in verse 11, read to verse 27. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country, to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound has gained ten pounds. And he said unto them, Well, thou good and faithful servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, thou shalt have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound has gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise, be thou also over five cities. Another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man, that thou takest, thou takest up, that thou layest not down, and reapest, that thou didst not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up what I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest thou not my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he has ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath, which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. For those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. So we see, we see a number of people here in this passage. In this parable, the nobleman Christ is evidently referring to himself. He was talking about the time when he was going to leave this earth and he was going to go to his father and receive his kingdom. And you know, he's also saying, I'm going to return. 
There's a time coming where I'm going to return. And then he also has his servants. And he has ten pounds that he, or he has, he has his money that he is giving to his servants and say, tells them, occupy till I come. And you know, the servants, it would seem, would be those who profess to be Christians. Those who are servants of this Lord. And I think we see three types of servants here that I've called the producers, the preservers, and then the rejectors. Um, it talks later here about the citizens, and I'm not exactly sure if, if this is his servants. He has ten servants, it only talks about three. So I'm not exactly sure if these citizens are his other servants or if they are someone else. It seems to me that they are probably some of the servants, um, but I'm not sure on that. Uh, maybe some of you have some thoughts on that. We can talk about that later. But you know, the um, the pounds that he gives, I don't think are exactly singular in what they represent. They represent, it could be a number of things, but I think as a as a whole, it represented this Lord was entrusting to his servants what he had. His possessions, his kingdom, you could say, what he had. He was entrusting it to these servants and he tells them to, gives them a mission. And he says, occupy. Occupy till I come. Now what does that word occupy mean? Does it mean occupying a chair? I sit here and I'll occupy and I'll wait till my master comes back and I'll keep his money here? Does it mean, you know, we could, we could think of various Various means, means for that. Does it mean I just hold down the fort? I'm just occupying and, you know, taking care of this. But if you look at the meaning of the word, it, it's, a, it's a word of action. It's not a word of just sitting back and taking it easy until my Lord returns. It quite literally means to be busy about. To be busy about. They were to be busy about their Lord's business. They were to produce, to grow what the Lord had given them. They were to expand his possessions, his wealth, his kingdom. You know, just because their Lord had gone didn't mean that he didn't, and was going to receive a kingdom, didn't mean that he didn't have an interest in what? He had left behind. And you know, in the same way, Jesus has left us. He has gone to the Father to receive his kingdom. But you know, in the meantime, he has left us to occupy till he comes. To be busy about his business. To be building his kingdom. And you know, as, as we know, you know, much of what Jesus talks about in the Gospels is about his kingdom. The kingdom that he is building here on earth. 
and what that kingdom looks like and how it acts and behaves. So I'd like to, I'd like to kind of take a look at these, these three servants here that I've called the producers, the preserver, and the rejectors. You know, the producers took their calling seriously. They saw the value of what they had been entrusted with by their Lord. And they worked to grow it. You know, and the results varied. We have two, we have two servants here who both worked to grow their Lord's possessions, his kingdom. And the abilities varied and the results varied. But you know, when we, if we look down, you know, to the end of the story, the Lord was happy with both of them. He was pleased with both of them because they had worked to build his kingdom. You know, God has left us here, as I said, to build his kingdom. We have a role to play. We have been entrusted. You know, as Christians, we have the gospel. As Christians, we have a king. As Christians, we have a kingdom to build. The gospel has been entrusted to us. You know, how do, we, how do we establish the kingdom of God here on earth? How do we build his kingdom here? You know, God has, has established what we call the church. You know, a collection of those who follow him, who accept, the, accept you know, God as their Lord and are following him. And, you know, he also lays out in the Bible how we should live our lives. He gives us principles on how we live our lives. And, you know, when those rules and those principles are followed, it sets us up differently than the rest of the world because we're following a different king. We're following a different set of principles. You know, it stands out to people. People see that, and it's different. It has the effect of attracting people. You know, we can, you know, there's people who are seeking, and they see something different, and it attracts them. You know, we can also raise godly families that, you know, also increases the number of those in the kingdom. But, you know, is that, all, all those things are a bit, a bit passive, you could say. Um, they're not passive in the sense that it takes effort to raise godly families. It takes effort to live the Christian life, to have the fruits of the spirits coming out of our lives. You know, it takes effort to fight the flesh and the devil. And those things are absolutely necessary. They are important. And without that, you know, we're not going to get very, we have, we have not much, we don't have much to offer. 
But do you know? Do we do we know? Do we have a proper view of what it means to be a light? What does it mean to be a light? You know, if if I'm focused on being a Christian myself, if I'm focused on you know raising a godly family. You know, what am I raising my children to be godly for? Well, obviously we want them to go to heaven, right? We don't want them, you know. So I'm raising, am I raising my family to be a godly family so that they can grow up and raise a godly family so that they can grow up and raise a godly family? And, you know, what is the, what is the purpose here? Um, other than, you know, okay, putting more people in heaven. Um, Raise godly family, more people in heaven when they die, you know. Um, what is, what is the, the driving purpose behind this? Yes, we bring glory to God, but what does, you know, what does that mean? You know, I think if we, if, we, if we expect to sit and be a light by being godly and expect all the people to come to us that see it, we're, it's not going to be very effective. Let's look at um, a couple more verses in Matthew chapter 5 here on the Sermon on the Mount, talking about being a light. These are familiar verses to us. Matthew 5, verse 13. You have the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men put a candle, light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. You know, sometimes, sometimes we get the idea of being a light as kind of a passive thing, where we are, we are following God. We're, you know, you say we're good Christians. You know, we love God. We're serving him, and we expect that, you know, people will see that. And that people will see that. We're being a light. But, you know, it's, it's more than that. If you look at what he, the things he's talking about here, salt is not just a, a small crystal that has some texture. You know, salt is something that in a wound it burns in your mouth. Or in your food, it tastes good. You know, have, do you ever remember being young or have you have children, and they get, like to get the salt shaker and they like to lick it? Have you ever had that problem? We have that problem at home sometimes. I remember doing it when I was young too. Salt was good. It's fun to taste it. It's not something that's just a crystal that you know has some shape and you see it and it's there. It reminds me of the, the words that Paul, Paul talks about I think, in 1 Corinthians. He says um, that we are, are a savor of life unto life to those that believe and a savor unto death unto death of others. You know, those that come to, come to face with the truth and the light that don't like it, it makes them angry. You know, if, you've, if you think about Cam's billboard um, project, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that makes very angry. 
because they don't like the truth coming at them. It's much easier for them to see someone living their life in a certain way than it is to have come face to face with something that really stands up and says this is the truth. Verse 14, it says, A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. You know, this is not just a light somewhere. This is a light that is put on a hill. This is a light that you're going to see. It's not one that's hiding in a valley or in a cave. It's one that you're going to see. And in verse 15 it says, Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. So not only are we lighting a candle as a light, but we don't hide it. We don't cover it. But we actually do something about it. We put it on a candlestick. We're putting it out there so that it can give more light. It's more than just simply lighting a candle. There's an action to it. And, you know, the danger is I think that we can, we can sometimes look at it as just we light a candle, we are light, we mind our own business, and we hope our light is shining. But, you know, I think if we look at these, these verses, there's more action to it than that. You know, God desires that all people would come to him. I'm just going to read a verse in Second Peter on that. Second Peter three nine. The Lord is not slack, and this is talking about the Lord returning. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I don't think God is content with a passive light. You know, we don't see a focus in the church, in the early church, you know, to expand the church, you know, just by maybe raising godly families and just being a light. I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not trying to downplay raising godly families. Um, that is very important, and we'll talk more about that later. That is very important. But I think it comes back to what I said earlier. What are we raising our godly families for? In Acts chapter 8, Verse 4, when persecution came to Jerusalem, it says, Therefore, they that went, this, was, this is talking after, um, after Stephen was killed um, and Saul was you know, persecuting the church, it says, Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. You know, I have to wonder what my response would be. You know, persecution came to the church. They weren't running and hiding, doesn't seem. They weren't leaving, bemoaning the things they left behind. It says they were going and they were preaching the word wherever they went. 
they don't appear attached to this present world or the things that they left behind. And you know, bringing others into the church, bringing people from maybe non-Christian backgrounds or, you know, from, from a worldly background, bringing them into the church can be uncomfortable. It can make us uncomfortable. It can make us ask uncomfortable questions. You know, it can put us outside of our comfort zone. It can stretch us. And you know, that's not a new thing. You know, it was a stretch to the Jews when the Gentiles began coming into the church. And I just read a couple of verses in, in Acts here as well. Over a page in Acts, Acts chapter 11, verse 4. Actually, we'll start in verse 1. And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest into men uncircumcised, and didst eat with them. But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning, and expounded it by order unto them. And that was, of course, the whole story with Cornelius. And he goes over the, the whole story of how God brought this about. You know, it was, it was something new. It was something, it was something a bit uncomfortable for them. And in Acts chapter 15, I think I'm ready to first seven verses here in Acts chapter 15. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenice, Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. When they were come to Jerusalem... They were received at the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all the things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, the Gentiles, by my mouth, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Oh, wait, the next two verses. Yeah, and God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. You know, this gave some challenges for the church. Bringing the Gentiles, it brought in some new people from different background, people from a different culture, people from a different way of life. And it brought some tough questions to the church. It brought some disagreements to the church on how they should handle this. But, you know, they were able to work through it. And, you know, they had to figure out how the gospel applied to the Gentiles. And, you know, I think it can sometimes feel a bit similar, you know, with us. Those of us who have been raised in a, say, a Christian culture. Those of us that have been have grown up in a culture that believes the Bible and strives to live out the Bible, build a culture around that. Um, and the ungodly world out there can feel maybe like the Gentiles. 
you know, we might be careful how we associate with them because of the wickedness. Um, we don't want to get, you know, too close to them because, you know, there's risk involved. There's ungodliness. Um, there's danger. But, you know, I had to think, was there any risk for these servants that were given the money by their Lord and then they went about to increase it? Was there any risk to that? You know, there probably was. I don't know how they invested that money. I don't know how they grew that money, but take for ex- just think for a bit with me. We'll, we'll use the example of maybe they planted a field. You know, when you go out to plant a field or plant your garden, you know, you are taking a risk. You're spending some money, you're buying seed, and you're hoping for a return. But, you know, you're not guaranteed a return on that investment. There's a lot of things that could happen between the time you plant that seed and the time that you harvest. You could have drought. You could have pests and bugs that eat your seed or your plants. You could um, have storms that destroy your crops. You know, planting a field is an investment without a guarantee of return. Let's think about the preserver a little bit. You know, I think the preserver, he also recognized the significance of what he had been given. And from his own words, he recognized that what he had been given was valuable. You know, wow, I've been given some of my master's possessions. And this guy is going to want it back when he comes back. I don't want to lose this. I don't want to, you know, risk losing this because he's going to require require it of me. So his approach was, I'll keep it safe. I'll lay it up real neatly in a napkin. I can keep it close by. I can make sure it's still there. It'll be safe. There's no risk of, or low risk of losing this. I'm going to preserve what I was given. But you know, if we look at how the story unfolds, preservation was actually a way to lose what he had been given. The master took away that, ta- that, um, that pound from that servant. You know, the kingdom of God is something that is living. It's not something that is static or unchanging. It's, one, it's something that, if it's not growing, it's soon going to be dying. You know, just like a plant that is growing, if you take away the things that it needs to grow, if you don't give it any water, if you don't give it the proper nutrients, it's eventually going to go from growing to dying. You know, it'll go through a t- it won't die immediately. 
you know, it might go into dormancy for a while to, you know, preserve itself to try to keep keep going when conditions are, are more favorable. But, you know, it's not going to just stay in a static state forever. It's going to either keep growing or it's going to begin to die or become weak so that something can, can um, destroy it. You know, when we hold, I think, when we hold the gospel in ourselves as a way of trying to preserve it, if we're just trying to keep the gospel ourselves, you know, and hope that, you know, the world around will see that we have the gospel and we'll come to it, You know, if we don't do something with it, it also begins to die. You know, think about think about what happens when someone loses purpose or hope in life. God created us all with a, a desire to have purpose in life. You know, that's one of the biggest questions is, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? I can see three questions. We all want to know that because we want to have a purpose. What happens when we don't have a purpose? You know, we get depressed. You know, people commit suicide because they lose all purpose or hope in life. And you know, we are all going to pursue something. None of us will sit here and just be static. We all are going to pursue something. The question is really, what is that? That what is, what is it that we are going to pursue? Where will we find our purpose and meaning in life? You know, if we don't find it in the kingdom of God, we're going to find it somewhere else. You know, we as Christians have been given, have been given or invested in by God. We have the gospel. Are we willing to take some risks to grow the kingdom of God? Or are we going to just try to preserve it and keep it? And if we do that, we're going to begin looking somewhere else for our purpose and meaning in life. If our focus is just on keeping what we have. You know, I don't know what this other servant was doing with his time while he had his talent laid up. I don't know if he was pursuing his own interests or maybe building his own little pile of wealth. The Bible doesn't tell us what he was doing with his time. He obviously wasn't investing his time in his master's um, possessions. And the point I want to make here, I think, is that you know, if we're not busy about growing the kingdom of God, if that's not a a focus and a vision in our lives, we're going, to be, we're going to be busy growing something. 
We're really busy pursuing something. You know, we might not pursue the American dream. We know the American dream, and, and that's not necessarily a singular thing. Um, but, you know, you could say the American dream might be a, um, it might be, um, a good education, um, a good business, high-paying job, you know, get married, have two children, beautiful house, solid investments, Retire early, kick back and relax. And we look at that and say, no, that's not godly. We wouldn't pursue that. But do we pursue our own version of the American dream? I, I don't, I just called it, do we pursue the Mennonite dream? And it's not necessarily a good term for it. Um, but basically a Christianized version of the American dream. And you could, you could say it goes something like this. A good job. Get married to a good wife. Have a nice place to raise my family, teach them how to be good workers, a good church to raise them up in, solid church is a safe place to raise my family. Um, we'll have six children. Um, when my children grow up, you know, we want them to find good marriage partners. Hopefully they'll live close by us. Um, hopefully they'll um, go to the same church as us, or at least a very similar one. You know... Do we pursue something that is kind of a Christianized version of the American dream? And I'm not saying those things in there are, are, are bad things. There's some very good things in there. But what, I'm, what, I'm, what I want to think about is... <clears throat> oh, I, was, I wasn't quite done with that yet. Maybe a good amount of money laid aside to take care of me in my older years. You know, We'll still keep working. Um, we're not going to kick back and just retire. Um, but maybe, you know, we'll go to Florida for at least part of the winter. Um, and I'm not pointing, not pointing fingers at anyone, but I'm, and, and I'm not saying these things are, are bad. Some of these things are very good. But what is our, what is driving us? What is motivating us? Is it just a version of the American dream that has, some Christian values stamped on it? Is it just preserving a, a biblical culture and way of life till Christ comes back? Or, you know, do we have a focus on growing the kingdom of God and living our lives accordingly? You know... I think the problem is when we focus on preserving ourselves or just preserving what we have, if that's what our focus is on, you know, it's not a very safe place for a living biblical Christianity. It's something that becomes stale and stagnant. You know, it allows us to put our energy towards building our kingdoms on earth inside a semblance of biblical culture. You know, it kind of hollow it can kind of hollow us out from the inside, kind of like a towering oak that is rotting from the inside out. You know, it's still there with all its structure, and you see all the biblical culture that is good, is built 
that's built on, on what the Bible teaches is good. But is it hollowed out? Are we just trying to preserve that nice big tree on the outside? And so, you know, on our quest for preservation, we lose the very thing we were trying to preserve. I said I talk about godly families a little more, and I, I want to be—I want to be clear that raising godly families is an important thing. I'm not saying that that's not good enough. And if you're sitting here as a mom, you're probably—you're probably thinking, you know, like my hands are full. You know, I—what more can I do? I mean, how am I going to be out there somehow building the kingdom, whatever that means? Um. And that's not what I'm saying. I mean, what does it mean to raise a godly family? It does mean teaching them to obey. It does mean teaching Sammy and Sally the Bible stories and what the Bible teaches. It means teaching them to be diligent and hardworking. But, you know, I think it also means raising them with a vision for the kingdom of God. You know, so that Sammy and Sally can grow up and they can reach out to those that are around them. They can reach out and find those that are seeking. You know, children catch on very quickly to what our priorities are and what drives us. You know, children are very perceptive. And, you know, if you live with anyone for a long period of time, you get to know that person very well. And, you know, children live with you from the time they are born till, you know, upper teens or older many times. And they learn what drives you. They learn what, what your visions and goals are. You know, teaching them all these good things is good, it's important, it's part of what builds character, it's part of what builds stability, it's part of what helps them to be able to have the discipline that they need in the Christian life. You know, we want to set them up in a good place so that they can go out and they can grow the kingdom of God. They can reach the lost and the seeking You know, in the parable that Jesus gave of the lost sheep, you know, he didn't, he didn't, the shepherd did not stand there and say, here I am, sheepy, I'm right here. You know, if you want to find me, you know, I'm here, come, I'm here. You know, it's the safety here. What did he do? He went out to find that sheep. That sheep was lost. That sheep was probably seeking. But that didn't mean that the sheep could see him. He went out looking for them. And, you know, that wasn't without risk. You know, crawling around the mountains after dark probably involved some risk. Probably was a bit dangerous. You know, seeking lost sheep is not a risk-free business. There are dangers associated with that. You know, you can say... One opens us to dangers from the out, more dangers from the outside. But you know, I think sitting around 
opens us to dangers from the inside. That's not to say that you don't get dangers either way on either of those scenarios. But you know, one has much more risk coming from the outside. I think one has much more risk coming from the inside. You know, sometimes it's proposed as, you know, you have the risky one going out and you have the safe one staying back. But I don't think that's necessarily the way to look at it. There's risks both ways. And as to which one is safer, I don't know. I think there's ditches on both of them. But I think we have to remember the preserver lost what he had. He didn't gain anything by trying to preserve what he had. And I don't have much to say about the rejectors, the third category there. But, you know, I think those are the the ones, you know, who reject, you know, the lordship of Jesus. And, and you know, they, they might acknowledge God, but they still run their lives the way they want to run their lives. They don't value what was entrusted to them. They don't want anything to do with the Lord. So moving on, what does this all mean for us? You know, am I a missionary? I think it's clear that we should all be missionaries. I think we many times look at, or just think about the definition again. You know, what is a missionary? It's someone with a specific task, calling or vocation, someone that is sent to perform. And I think if we look at the scriptures, we all have a calling and task. We have tasks we are sent to perform. We have a calling and a vocation. And so we should be missionaries. You know, I think we many times look at missions a bit too narrowly. You know, we tend to think of it as an organization or as something that you go and do. You know, when we understand what a missionary is and what our mission is, I think supporting our missionaries looks a bit different as well. You know, it's one thing to support our missionaries financially. It's one thing to support them, work to support them emotionally. It's it's one thing to um, pray for them. Those are all very important things. But one thing I think they feel that I alluded to in the beginning is, do we support the mission? Not necessarily the the specific mission that they are involved in. They feel that, yes, whether we support that or not. But do we support the mission ourselves in our own lives? You know, I alluded to the the, uh, the, the comment we make sometimes, you know, not everyone can go, but, you know, we should all be missionaries where we're at. That is a very true statement. We're not all going to go to a certain mission, necessarily. But do we support the mission that Christ has given us in our own lives? Or is, or is that statement more of a way to comfort ourselves that 
you know, I can serve God without sacrifice. That I can serve God with less sacrifice. Yes, we sacrifice. We, we um, give our money and maybe some of our time to support their mission. But am I willing to sacrifice in my own life to be a missionary right where I'm at to those around us? You know, we're, we're glad that someone goes and is willing to make a sacrifice and, you know, basically, you know, giving up their, their lives for a mission to reach a loss somewhere. But are we willing to do that ourselves in our own lives right where we're at? Or are we content, you know, to preserve what we have, preserve my life, and, you know, live my version of the American dream. And, you know, I think that's something that missionaries feel very keenly. You know, do, do those behind us support, not only do they support our mission specifically, but they, do they support the mission broadly? Are they willing to set, make, are they making sacrifices in their own lives? And I think that's a, um, a good way to, you know, think about how important is being a missionary to me. Am I willing to make sacrifices in order to be a missionary right where I'm at? <clears throat> you know, when we have a mission we want to accomplish, you know, our priorities kind of fall in line behind that. And, you know, we put the resources towards accomplishing what we need to accomplish that we can. We don't use them for just, you know, frivolous or other things that don't lead towards accomplishing that mission. You know, other things, when we have a priority, other things have to give way to that. And, you know, we talked about talked about it a bit, what it might look like in the home. You know, raising children is an important ministry. Am I, are we raising them with a vision for the kingdom of God in mind and for bringing the world around us to a knowledge of him? You know, it might mean living more simply so that we can devote more of our time or our resources to the kingdom of God. It might mean having people over in your home for a meal. Maybe not the nicest people. Maybe not the cleanest people. Maybe not very godly people. But you know, if we're going to find those who are seeking, it's going to involve some fishing. You know, the, the seekers are not always going to come to us. Jesus told Peter, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. You know, if we want to if we want to find those who are seeking, we need to be, we need to find them. We need to be interacting with people. We need to be reaching out to people. And you know that can be that can be many different ways. You know we might we might interact with people in business. We might interact with people and travel. 
you know, finding ways to use interactions and people that we come in contact with. And, you know, many times we have a conversation with someone, we have we have ability to, you know, steer that conversation somewhat. And, you know, you can you can quickly find and maybe someone is interested in talking about about God or if they're not interested in talking about God. And you know, we can turn turn regular interactions into opportunities to do some fishing. Being a missionary is a way of life. It's not a program. It's not a place. It's a it's a it's a part of our lives. Being a missionary is a part has to be part of our lives. You know, programs can be helpful in creating opportunities to interact with people and to find those that are seeking. But programs themselves are not what missions are about. So I'm not here I'm not here to set anyone on a guilt trip. I'm not here to you know, point fingers at anyone. But I want to challenge us and myself, you know, do we have the mission in our focus? You know, is am I a missionary? Or am I just trying to preserve the godly things that I have? Am I reaching out? Or am I just trying to, am I focusing inwardly? Not that preserving what we have, not that preserving biblical things is a bad thing. That is an important thing, a necessary thing. But if our focus becomes that, just preserving biblical things, and we forget about what the mission is that God has given us, I think that's when we begin to open ourselves up to rotting from the inside out. So that's a challenge for me, it's a challenge for each one of us. You know, do I have a commitment to carrying out and expanding the kingdom of God here on earth while he tarries? Am I willing to take those pounds that he has entrusted me with and to take some risks and to grow his kingdom? May God bless each one of us as we strive to follow him and to expand his kingdom.